Welcome to This Week in California Education. I'm Lewis Friedberg, Executive Director of EdSource. Last week was the 50th anniversary of the release of the report of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, better known as the Kerner Commission. It was named after its chair, Governor Otto Kerner of Illinois. The commission was set up by President Johnson to look into the causes of the so-called race riots of 1967 and to make recommendations so they wouldn't be repeated. Its most famous observation was that our nation is moving towards two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. Martin Luther King Jr. at the time pronounced the report a physician's warning of approaching death with a prescription for life. In the last week of February, there were a number of events looking at what has happened over the past half century and how far along the nation has come. There was, for example, a three-day symposium hosted by the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society at UC Berkeley. I attended an event in Washington, D.C., organized by several organizations, including the Learning Policy Institute, which is based in Palo Alto and is headed by Linda Darling-Hammond. There were quite a few Californians there, but for those of you who couldn't attend, we thought we would devote this week's podcast to bring you excerpts from some of the impressive presentations made at that event. Here's Linda Darling-Hammond talking about some of the multiple programs the Johnson administration created to address the causes of the upheavals of the 1960s, and unfortunately, many of those programs were disbanded, which accounts for some of the lack of progress and, in fact, backsliding that has occurred over the last half century. I remember myself that in the summers, every kid could either have summer school or a summer job. It was part of what was going into the cities uh, at that time. Uh, education investments were substantial. Uh, ESEA was passed, the Education for Handicapped Children Act. Desegregation assistance was going to cities. Magnet schools were started and other forms of desegregation aid. Teacher Corps brought uh, teachers to high-need communities. Uh, the, the teacher shortages that had existed were actually, by the end of the 70s, uh, eliminated uh, with the federal aid that was going in. Higher education scholarships occurred. And in fact, in 1975, black, Latino, and white students went to college at exactly the same rate. That has never been true before, and it has never been true since. But there was a moment where this uh, set of investments made an enormous difference. Uh, school finance reforms were also going on to try to equalize uh, funding. Uh, and what happened as a result was that the achievement gap actually was cut in half by uh, the 80s. And uh, what happened in the 80s, of course, was that a lot of those programs were discontinued uh, during the Reagan administration. And the gap has since increased. It's now 30% larger than it was at that time. Uh, this is in reading, and you can see the same thing happened in math, a huge reduction in the achievement gap uh, as a function of those programs, and then growing again uh, in the era where those programs were ended. Uh, if we had continued the policies that were in place uh, during the 1970s, the achievement gap would have been closed by the year 2000, and we would be talking about something else by now. That was Linda Darling-Hammond of the Learning Policy Institute opening a symposium on the 50th anniversary of the release of the Kerner Commission report on February 29, 1968. Linda was followed by Gary Orfield, one of the nation's leading scholars on school desegregation. He is a research professor at UCLA and co-directs UCLA's Civil Rights Project. 
I've been to Kerner Commission celebrations in the 20th year, the 30th year, the 40th year. You know, I'm getting sick of the lack of progress that we're making on so many of the issues that the Kerner Commission addressed. The Kerner Commission told Lyndon Johnson at the end of a period of tremendous social change that we weren't doing nearly enough. And a few months later, we elected Richard Nixon, who was opposed to what the Supreme Court had done, who was going to raise the issue of incarcerating people much at a much broader scale, who changed the Supreme Court in a way that we haven't recovered from since with four court appointments, and set us on a course towards racial polarization by his treaty with the Southern segregationists that made the Republican Party uh, part of the reaction. Um, this was a tragedy and has been playing out ever since. So what do we have to do? Well, we have to do everything. <laughs> Lyndon Johnson understood that you can't deal with education without dealing with poverty. You can't deal with poverty without dealing with race. You have to help on each of these dimensions. Since then, we have had no one who has had that kind of vision running our country. And we have had a shrinkage on all these dimensions. We have to think about how to provide access to good schools of our regions for the students who need them. This means if we don't do desegregation, we have to have choice plans that expand opportunity instead of increase stratification, which is what's happening with many of our choice plans, voucher plans today. We have to have expanded college access funding and support. There's a huge gap in college access uh, and completion by income. And income, of course, is related to all these other racial conditions we've talked about. We have to think about fair access to neighborhoods and housing. We haven't accomplished that yet. And we do still have a tremendous problem of housing supply and discrimination steering, often steering by segregation of schools going on in our country. We need race-based remedies for race-based problems. Affirmative action is a classic example. You can't solve the problem of unequal preparation for college, unequal communities, unequal families without having a positive plan to deal with it. We have to think about ways to bring back the people we put in jail back into our society. We have to reintegrate them. We can't send them off to a, a dead end um, um, acceleration school or whatever they'll call it at, as they come out of jail we have to send them back to a decent school and we have to give them Pell Grants while they're in jail um, if they're adults. We have to think about ending all the obstacles of voting. The Voting Rights Act opened the door. It's being slammed shut in many of our states around the country now. And that's one of the things that has to be addressed. And we have to think about how to reintegrate or ex accept the integration of undocumented families that have been part of the society of our, uh, of our country for decades, uh, rather than terrorizing their children and um, um, harming those communities so deeply. We basically need a commitment to racial justice and training in all of our institutions. And we need to stop thinking that we can have a magic bullet that we can change a little bit about the structure of who organizes our schools, for example, and that it will make a big difference. It won't. These things are interrelated, they are self-perpetuating, and they can only be changed by a commitment to address them in a fundamental way in all of our institutions. That was UCLA's Gary Orfield and co-director of the Civil Rights Project there.
Also speaking at the event commemorating the Kerner Commission report was former U.S. Secretary of Education John King. He was secretary in the last year of the Obama administration, and he's now president of the Education Trust in Washington, D.C. It doesn't have to be this way. And I think it's important in these conversations that we not only grapple with the reality of what we aren't doing, but also look to the places that are doing the right thing in important ways. My kids go to school in Montgomery County, uh, just over the Maryland border. Montgomery County has a 40-year history of commitment to mixed-income housing and to integrated schools. It's not perfect, but both of my kids go to schools that are majority students of color, racially integrated, socioeconomically integrated, and have very strong academic performance. Montgomery County has demonstrated that students who go to schools that are diverse actually do better over the long run than students who go to schools of concentrated poverty, even when those schools get additional resources. The reality is diversity matters for academic outcomes, it matters for socio-emotional outcomes, and not just for kids of color. White students, their educational experience is diminished by the absence of diversity in their schools. We know that going to a diverse school increases your likelihood of developing empathy, improves your problem-solving skills, and again, has important academic consequences for low-income students and students of color. But Montgomery County isn't alone. There are places like Louisville, Kentucky, where their school desegregation order ended, but the community is committed to school diversity. In fact, last year, the community leadership had to resist an effort by the state legislature to break up their school integration strategy. Folks who ostensibly are believers in local control, but were willing to override local control to undermine school diversity in Louisville, Kentucky. There are places that are doing, doing good work under court order, like Hartford, Connecticut, where the CHEF decision is translated into a two-way integration strategy where you've got kids from Hartford going to suburban schools and suburban kids coming into Hartford to attend schools that are providing quality educational opportunities to kids. The Century Foundation had a report a year or so, or two years ago, on 100 communities around the country that are doing important school diversity work. And it ranges from dual language programs that attract families who are English learners, but also families who speak English at home but want their kids to learn a second language. Those schools are often racially and socioeconomically diverse. There are places that are intentional about their choice design, something Gary raised, places like Cambridge, Massachusetts, that has a long history of a controlled choice program based on uh, socioeconomic status that's helping to maintain diversity in their schools. There are places that have strong magnet programs, arts magnets, STEM magnets, an increasing body of research around public Montessori schools and their ability to attract a diverse student population and get good academic outcomes. There are places that are being intentional about redesigning their school attendance zones. I think about a community that had two K-5 schools, both segregated, one largely white, one largely students of color. And so they replaced those two schools with a K through two and a three through five, both of which were integrated. So we have to lift up these examples of places that are doing the right thing so that we can encourage progress. There are also charter schools that are being created that are diverse by design. That is, they are intentionally designed to create socioeconomically and racially diverse communities. Again, we gotta celebrate these examples and point people to them. 
at the end of the day, this work couldn't be more urgent. I'm so glad that we are having this conversation. We have to acknowledge that we're having this conversation at a moment where the country seems to be going backwards on these fundamental values, not just on policy, but on tone. When you have an administration that is unclear on the difference between the KKK marching across the college campus and those who are protesting against hate, when you have kids in classrooms scared of being deported, scared of their families being deported, when you have Muslim communities around the country, knowing that the, there was a travel ban put in place to target them specifically, right? when that is the tone that's being said, when you have the President of the United States referring to countries with unacceptable language, dripping with hatred, we got to worry not just about the policy victory that we need to win, but about defending fundamentally who we are as Americans and the notion that we are a people that recognizes the human rights and dignity of all of our people. That was former U.S. Secretary of Education John King. Following King was UCLA Professor Patricia Gondara, who with Orfield co-directs the UCLA Civil Rights Project. She noted how differently the United States and its public schools now look compared to when the Koenig Commission came out with its report. The big difference? The influx of immigrants since then. Gandhara described a study her organization has just completed on how schools and immigrant children are responding to the current harsher enforcement policies of the Trump administration. The things that we're going to point out are that random raids and deportations of parents of the children, of, of citizen children, have the students in our country, these students, these immigrant students, overwhelmingly US citizens, terrorized. 90% of administrators in the study across the country observed behavioral or emotional problems in these immigrant students. And one in four said this was really extensive. And again, it was most evident in the South. A Tennessee counselor tells us several students have arrived at school crying, withdrawn and refusing to eat lunch because they've witnessed deportations of a family member. Some students show anxiety symptoms. All of this impacts their ability to focus and complete work, which further affects them academically. We're undermining these kids academically with the terror that has rained down on them. And kids are losing ground in school. 70% of administrators from across the country reported an academic decline among their immigrant students. One in six counselors reported this to be extensive. And many teachers report that college-bound excellent students, their best students, are giving up on school because they doubt that they have a future in the US. And as a Tennessee administrator says, they're not thinking about college or the, or the test next week or what is being taught in the classroom today. They're thinking about their family and whether they will still be a family whether their family will remain intact. Immigrants have always been good for this country. These immigrant students have at least five characteristics that make, that prime them to be our very best learners in our schools. They have resilience. These kids face poverty, they face incredible fear, uncertainty, lack of support, and yet they come back and they come back and they come back. These children who come from Latino and, and, um, and Asian American families also tend to have an orientation towards collaborative learning. They like to work in teams. And that's something that employers are telling us, this is, what, this is the way we need to educate our children. These children have hopefulness. 
they are optimistic. These are the true believers in the American dream. And these children have uh, languages other than English to build on so that they are bilingual. And we now know that there are tremendous cognitive benefits to being multilingual. And finally, they are multicultural. They can see things from various perspectives. And that helps these children to be more innovative, more creative. It helps us all to be more creative. Unfortunately, we are squandering this asset. That was UCLA's Patricia Gandara. Wrapping up the event in Washington, D.C. was Kent McGuire. He is director of the education program at the Hewlett Foundation. McGuire was formerly president and CEO of the Southern Education Foundation. The facts speak for themselves. Linda's facts, Gary's facts, Patricia's facts, they're all working from publicly available longitudinal data. So, you know, there's no quarrel we should have with the facts. They're irrefutable, the stratification uh, with regard to both access and opportunity that the facts reveal. We probably do need to think through new and more imaginative ways to sort of bring these facts into wider view. Then there's another reality about the facts, uh, which is that this is not about the facts. I certainly learned this up close in the last eight years I spent in the Deep South. Um, I ran an organization that got really good at putting the facts in front of people. Folks were not confused about the facts. (laughs) They really weren't. They were not confused about the facts. We told them. Kids are poor. They're in deep poverty. Um, Kids aren't learning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They weren't confused about any of that. They just weren't interested in the facts, right? And so that's the other reality with which we must contend. Uh, We have to actually bring the facts we have into wider view, and we have to also grapple with the facts that it's not always about the facts. And I think we've got to figure out how to work both those things, uh, which leads me to observe that uh, a point about transformation. You know, we've really dropped the ball, uh, us adults, uh, not just with regard to public policy, but also with regard to our conception of schools in this country. Um, we're still tinkering, by and large, around the edges of a system that was created 70 years ago for the express purpose of sorting kids. That's what it was built to do. Um, And we actually have to figure out how to create a system or transform the system we have, evolve more rapidly toward a system that's actually designed to help young people learn to learn. And I'm actually deeply worried about the extent to which we have actually figured that out. That brings me finally to my third point about power. While we struggle with the facts, and while we get clearer about the transformation that we also need, we might as well come to terms with the fact Uh, that the conversation we're having here and the fact that we're trying to do this on the occasion of the 50th 
year anniversary of the Turner Commission, is that this is inevitably about power. It is inevitably about power. So when we bring the facts forward and marshal a conversation about school transformation, we really do have the unfortunate burden, I personally think, of putting this in a broader political and social context. If we can't connect those dots, this will just take that much longer. And the longer it takes, uh, the harder this is to solve and the, the more kids we lose. That was Kent McGuire, director of the education program at the Hewlett Foundation. I'm sure you will agree that the comments you've heard, only a fraction of what they and others presented at the event, provide much food for thought. Clearly, the nation is nowhere near where it should be in transforming the separate and unequal society that the Kerner Commission report described. At the same time, all the speakers introduced notes of optimism and agendas for action that provide pathways for all of us. If I can quote one of my own personal heroes, Nelson Mandela, and not only because I grew up in South Africa and observed Nelson Mandela voting for the first time in his life in 1994. It's a long walk to freedom and there's much more work to be done. Thanks for listening to this special podcast. Thanks to our sponsor to the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and thanks to all of you for listening. See you next week.